Tonight we're going to continue our study in the Gospel according to John. Last week I completed uh, an analysis of John 5, 25-32, and when time expired we had just begun a study of John 5, 33-47, and that by way of the doctrine of witnessing. I want to review some of that learned, and then we will begin new material on page 3. But first, let's use First John 1, 9, as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study your word. Help us to uh, exercise our privilege in this, the the devil's world, to uh, see the power of God, which of course comes to us through, again, the study of the Holy Scriptures. So guide us and direct us. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, first let's take a look at the King James Version of 533-3435 as we did last week. He sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth, but I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Again, in reference to John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. All right, we do indeed uh, have several witnesses found in the verse 533 through verse 47 and I think it's well we break them out as follows because that's what the scripture does it first speaks of a witness of works we witness with our works as well as with our words John 536 But I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And then John speaks of a witness of the Father. The Father indwelling in the Son and controlling all things provides a witness Regarding the Son as follows, the Son and His role as the Messiah, John 5, 37 and 38. And the Father Himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me, yea, neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His shape, and ye have not His word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent him, ye believe not. 
And then he speaks of a witness of the scripture. The Old Testament foretold of the coming and what the Christ would do. John 5, 39, reading through verse 47. A witness of the scriptures. Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. I receive not honor honor from men, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, for there is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For Moses wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? And then we began a study of the doctrine of witnessing. A categorical study. Point one, witnessing is the responsibility of every believer. Two, Witnessing is the normal exhale of doctrine inhaled. Three, witnessing will be effective regardless of the motivation of the one witnessing. All right, point four. And I think that's where we left off last week, but the assertion clearly seen in Scripture, the power is in the Word. Romans 10:17 So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Isaiah 55:11 So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth it shall not return unto me void but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. The convincing of sin, righteousness, and of judgment is the responsibility of God the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. That would be the Holy Spirit. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Notice, of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world, the devil, is judged. Now then, let's look at some false concepts of witnessing. Firstly, 
assuming the lost will not be saved if we do not witness. Assuming you are spiritual because you witness. Assuming you are spiritual because you witness effectively. Assuming you must ask people to accept Christ in your presence. Assuming God is not using you if God does not lead you to a, quote, target, close quote. Scriptures that document those assumings. First of all, Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Somehow, some way, God will get the word to mankind. Each one individually. And certainly John in one ten make excuse me, John one nine makes that clear. Remember that John one nine, not first John one nine. John one nine that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Romans one twenty one because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Romans one twenty eight, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So that God gets the word to everybody is certainly confirmed and documented in John 1, 9, where uh, it's a reference to Jesus, and it's a a reference to the work of not only Jesus, but the revelation of God the Holy Spirit. And of course, Jesus was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And Romans one twenty one, of course, told us that uh, when they had the word, they didn't believe it. In fact, they spit it out. But not that they didn't get it, but that they didn't want it. And that also is confirmed in Romans one twenty eight. All right, we can therefore relax and enjoy the privilege of witnessing telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ. When they have a question, you answer it. All right, uh, and we'll see more of that later on because it speaks of people wanting to know and when they want to know, they reveal their desire to know and then you provide them with the knowledge that they want. So, it's important that we relax and enjoy the privilege of witnessing. We should witness simply because God said to do it. Alright, Acts 1.8 Ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now let's look at a few nuances of witnessing. As a general rule, every believer is responsible for presenting the gospel to a lost and dying world. 
This is called personal evangelism. Believers are also responsible for supporting worldwide evangelism. This we do by giving to people or organizations with mass evangelism programs. And then another nuance, the family plan. The first parents set the example for all future parents by witnessing to their children. The family plan of evangelism continued up and through the time of Noah. And it is our job today as parents and grandparents to witness to members of our families. So evangelism in every respective age or ages has nuances. First, let's look at several important differences in the respective dispensations. Let's begin with the first age. And that's the first age on our dispensation chart. And we have a doctrine of dispensations, not only on the internet, but also on our podcast. All right, this age age can be divided into three sub-ages. Innocence, the fall, and flood. In this age, the family land, excuse me, the family plan was the most important method of evangelism, even, even as it is today. God also appeared directly to people in this first age. It was up to them to respond positively or negatively. Genesis 3, 21, 22, 23 and 24. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. Important distinction there, often overlooked. To know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. In other words, to block the way. Genesis 5, 23 and 24. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. Genesis six nineteen and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep thee, keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. 
And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Again, a reference to just before the flood. And if you need more information uh, on the creation, as well as the flood, uh, as well as to other scriptures relating to uh, the angelic conflict, etc., you may go to the internet and see a doctrine that we have entitled Old Testament Overview. It's on the home page of our website. All right, now let's look at Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. Now the Lord God said unto Avram, that's Abraham later to be named, Get thee out of thy country, that is out of the, the city of Ur, the land of Ur, and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Abram, of course, was the first Jew. And there's a promise with reference to the Jew that he's going to take them to a promised land. And that he did. And then he left them there so long as they did what he told them to do. And he also told them that they would be removed from that land for a time until he changed them and they began to show the rest of the world how to live. And then they would get their promised land. So keep that in mind. This is your first Jew, but it's also a Jew who received a promise. And he gave us a caution that we should take care of the Jew. And it tells the the Jew, you're going to get a land, but you're going to get it when you shape up. And that would be after the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. So that's an interesting study of and to itself. And uh, you might want to look at the the land of Israel or the doctrine of the land, which my son-in-law has put on as a special in uh, our web, on, on our website uh, of the lesson last week, the Sunday lesson. And we also have it as it's listed now under Pastor Merritt's study books, but it gives you a history of how did Israel get the land? Why did the Palestinians not uh, in the land? Who were the people who purchased the land that Israel is in today? But be careful. The land that they are in today is not the promised land. They will get that after the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. They may be in the land, but they're not the promised people mentioned in the scripture. Though they are wonderful people and very successful people. And when you read uh, about the land, you will see how 
they have prospered wherever they have gone because they do have the genes of one who received the wonderful promise promises Genesis 12 1 2 and 3 of Ram all right let's look at the next age the age of Israel in this age we see a major change although God did continue to use the family plan and direct appearances he also chose a people and assigned them the job of evangelizing the nations. They did that occasionally, but not like God would have had them to do had they been on positive signals and uh, performed according to what God would have them to do. After God destroyed the Tower of Babel, and that's, of course, in the land where Abram was told to leave, a pagan land, an idol-worshipping land. But after they were told to leave, after selecting a people, Genesis 12, 3, which we just read, and after the sojourn in Egypt, he created the nation Israel as his priest nation. Now remember, they were in the, uh, the land of Egypt for some time, and naturally they had been some cohabitations between Israelis and Egyptians, uh, which uh, is kind of characteristic of the age of Israel, uh, certainly as they were removed into Babylon and uh, lived there for 70 years in the diaspora. Uh, so they've had a tough time, all as a method God used to shape them up but they just refused, even after he brought them back to the land. But again, that's another series of lessons that can be found under an Old Testament overview. All right, so after God destroyed the Tower of Babel, after selecting a people, and after their sojourn in Egypt, what did he do? He created a nation. The first time Israel was a nation was when he called them out of Egypt. Prior to that, they were just a people. And what was their job? Their job was to witness to a lost world, which from time to time they did, but not very often. They did somewhat reluctantly, but not as God would have them to do. Notice Jonah 1, 1, and we'll read verse 2 and verse 3 also in the book. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a seagoing vessel sailing to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. An evidence of the negative volition that Israel from time to time demonstrated. He didn't do what God said to do. And of course you know the 
he paid the price. Uh, but he also, very reluctantly, went to Assyria and uh, evangelized them. And Assyria became a great client nation to God for a number of years. Now let's look at Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. And I shall read verse 4 through verse 7. So Aram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and that's from the land of Chaldea, in the city of Ur. And uh, he took Lot with him, and Avram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Avram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And Avram passed through the land unto the place of Sikkim, unto the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Avram and said unto, Thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto them. Notice that I will give unto them a land. But they have certain things to do. Which they did not do, by the way. But they will. Just because God said he would, he will give them the land after our Lord returns at the second advent, which will occur seven years after the rapture of the church. Alright, Genesis 26. Reading verses 23, 24, and 25. And Isaac went up from thence to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham or Abraham's sake. And he built in an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. All right, Exodus 3, 2, 3, and 4. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside. I see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. So you recall, Moses decided, I'm going to get out of here because I killed one of those Egyptian guards. And uh, God called him back. And he gave him a sign, the burning bush. It didn't burn. And he spoke to him, said, let's go back. You're going to represent me in Egypt. And you'll remember he didn't want to do that. He had some excuses like we have excuses from time to time. But let's read on about how the Lord appears and speaks and has spoken. 
First Kings chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 9. And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices, and with much gold and precious stones. And, and when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions, and in other words, answered her. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. Now she had developed questions down there on the, in the, on the horn of Africa. We're not real sure which of the African countries from which she came, perhaps Ethiopia, etc. But, uh, there was, uh, the Holy Spirit working with her, a Gentile, down in the, the, the horn of Africa. And she had heard of the wonderful things that had happened up there in Israel and, uh, of course, the capabilities of Solomon and the glory of his kingdom, etc. So now let's go back now to verse 4, 1 Kings 10. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She was flabbergasted. She was bonkers. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in my own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. So she heard of the wisdom. God spoke directly to her even at that time, even in another land. And uh, it's important for us to keep that in mind. She went to see Solomon. Solomon answered her, and there's certainly evidence, and books have been written, of the fact that uh, Solomon impregnated her. And she gave birth to several members of her country and uh, there was even a king in Ethiopia who claimed to be a descendant and DNA tests have proven that yes those folks many of them down there in the horn of Africa have Jewish uh, genetics genes and uh, well that's another story very interesting story Uh, so let's go on verse 7 8 and 9 Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceeded the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, said the queen. Happy are these thy servants which stand continuously before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted, delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. We often overlook the amount of doctrine that the Holy Spirit had provided to the queen, but certainly that last, last, uh, I'd say, 
verse, when, uh, especially the last half, let me read it again. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee, to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he the king to do judgment and justice. All right, so much then for the age of Israel proper. Now let's look at what we call the hypostatic union, also called the kingdom age, for it is the age in which Israel is offered the long-awaited Messiah. Once again, the family of God was used of God to evangelize the young. This age was most unique because the Son of God appeared on earth and offered his kingdom to Israel. Salvation in this age was the result of accepting Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew ten thirty two and 33. Whosoever therefore shall confess me, that is Christ, before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. So the book of Matthew is what we call a synoptic gospel. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and thus its contents have primary application to Israel. Ergo, positional sanctification is a product of accepting Christ as the Jewish Messiah. He was on earth, and he, uh, of course, did many, many things. And in the eyes of those who lived at that time in the Jewish age and the record of their conduct, of course, being part and parcel of the, the uh, synoptics. All right, now let's go to the next point. It's actually 10.3.4.7, if you're following on your written lesson. The primary application, therefore, is related to the Messiah's offering and any acceptance, any acceptance of the Messiah by definition must be before men. Because Christ was on the earth before men. So that will not happen again until, of course, Christ returns. And then we'll have a different, quote, technically different way of salvation. But all salvation is the same. Faith alone in Christ alone. Some looked forward to his coming, some look at his coming, and then some look back at his coming. All right, let's go. Notice Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 25, and we will read through verse 30. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord. Yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, Go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, 
she found the devil gone and her daughter laid upon the bed. Now the next age, of course, is the church age. And of course, we're going to study that later for it is the age in which we live. But much of that taught early will apply either directly or indirectly to the church age. So let's jump to the age of Israel, the tribulation, the seven years God owes the Jew. This unique age is separate, but clearly the final seven years owed Israel. The tribulation is a Jewish age. And I refer you to our doctrine of dispensation. It was foretold by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, and is commonly called, that is to say, that which we find there uh, described, the tribulation. It's called the 70th week. Like all ages, personal and family evangelism will be important. The catalyst of all evangelism, however, in the tribulation will be Israel. Once again, Israel will take the lead in worldwide evangelism just as they were supposed to. In these seven devastating years, 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the resurrected Moses and Elijah, three angels and a big bird will spread the gospel throughout the world. Notice with the Jewish evangelists, they are responsible and they did much better than ever before, fulfilling what God would have for them to do to evangelize the world, together, of course, with Gentiles living in the tribulation. But uh, remember now that the uh, tribulation... uh, will have already removed believing church age saints. So those in the tribulation period will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, as the scripture says, so many that you can't count the nations from which they come. Uh, and uh, it's important because there are those who say that nobody in the tribulation who lived in there in uh, had come from the church age will have an opportunity to believe. That is patently false. Let's go on. Look at Revelation seven four. Then I humbled excuse me, then I heard the number of those who were sealed. Hundred and forty four thousand from all the tribes of Israel. Then chapter seven verse nine. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the front, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So there are many believers in the tribulation period who made their decision during the tribulation period. Because going into the tribulation, there were only unbelievers since the believers had been raptured. But keep that in mind. You may have to use it someday when you speak to others. Revelation 7.4, Revelation 7.9. 
So there are Jewish evangelists and there are many who respond to these Jewish evangelists. In fact, they will become the active catalyst in the tribulation just as we Gentiles are today in the age of the church. Active catalyst. All right. And then who else? Well, there will be a witness of Elijah and Moses. That's a reincarnated Elijah and Moses. Revelation chapter 3 tells us about it. Let's begin with Revelation 11.3. And we're going to read, ooh, my, all the way through Revelation 11.12. And I will give power to my two witnesses. Well, first of all, let's just establish, who are the two witnesses? The two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. We know this from the Transfiguration, and we know it from the way they, well, what they do when they're on earth as reincarnated witnesses. So let's move down. Move forward with 11.3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's one half of the tribulation period. And they'll be clothed in sackcloth. There are These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, Fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky just as Elijah did so that all, so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as they want. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. That's the devil. And he will use, of course, his demons to perform his work. And so they have previously been able to do their work because they could uh, actually, through the use of fire, take care of their enemies. I assume spit it out of their mouth or maybe take their hand and point at someone and zap them. But God has a plan and a program. So he's going to let their bodies lie and straighten in the great city because Satan has overcome them. And in that city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, what city is that? That's Jerusalem, where also their Lord was crucified. So for three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze upon their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending gifts to one another because the two prophets that had tormented those who live on the earth by the things that they did, like turning the water into blood, etc. But after three and a half days of life from God, God entered them, gave them life, And they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And then a terrible earthquake occurred, and more than 7,000 died. Uh, That was some kind of witness. They thought, oh boy, these guys are dead. Let's exchange gifts like we do it today at Christmas time 
and it would be oh so wonderful. And then suddenly they raise up, and then they had this massive earthquake. The Lord God had spoken. So in addition to the two witnesses, of course, and others, let's look at angelic witnesses. Revelation 14, 6. Now this is what's happening in the tribulation period in the way of witnessing. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. Notice, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. You have no excuse because the glorious gospel that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. And then we have a very large bird. That should be something to behold. Revelation 8.13 And I beheld and heard an eagle. In the Greek that's atos, a flesh-eating bird flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, Angelos, which are yet to sound. So the big bird, if you will, not from television, but the big bird uh, must have been something. Gray, large, ugly, maybe good-looking, I don't. So he is a witness. So you can see we have a number of unusual witnesses in the world. And of course, uh, it's uh, in, in the world, but specifically here we've been talking about the tribulation. So let's leave the tribulation and let's go to the next age, which is the millennium. Alright, here we go. The millennium. This age is also called the age of Christ. It is the promised perfect environment on earth in which the four unconditional covenants will be given to Israel. They will perform the Abrahamic, the Palestinian, the Davidic, and the New. And we have a doctrine on the internet called the doctrine of the four unconditional covenants. Now, Christ will in the millennium rule from Jerusalem and Israel will again be proudly displayed on earth as his chosen people. The personal reign of Jesus Christ in this age begins with only believers. But there are children with volition born to the believers who first inhabited. And each generation will need to be evangelized. Now the responsibility for evangelism evangelism seems to rest with the Lord Jesus for so so extensive is the knowledge of Christ. There will no longer be a need for teachers. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jeremiah 34, excuse me, Jeremiah 31, 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. All right, that's a partial restatement of the new covenant, by the way. Now then, let's see what promise we will have in the scripture. 
few of them, in the age of the church. I promised you these earlier, you remember, since that's the age in which we live, we'll cover them later, said I. So our job is to accurately present the claims of Christ with the relaxed mental attitude, responding to the positive volition of those who are ready for gospel hearing. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The Holy Spirit will do the rest of the work. Recall the power is in the word. My word shall not return to be void, but shall accomplish that which I please and shall prosper in the thing whereunto I have sent it. People simply believe for salvation as opposed to walking the aisle, raising their hand, signing a card, cleaning up their life, etc. And the, the faith that faith is not enough, of course, is, is attacked. The view that faith is not enough, in fact, to some is blasphemous, arrogant, and denies the doctrine of the total depravity of man, as though mankind could do it by himself. But I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh under the Father. And that is, of course, it's all done by Jesus the Christ. So mankind is no good, no dang good. He is without hope, without Christ, and without eternal life. And his works are what? Are like filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. All right, wickedness. Characterizes very being, says Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind. So Isaiah speaks first, and then Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now let's look at a few scriptures which tell us faith is sufficient without works and one which even tells us the more you work, the greater the debt. So as I read these, think about them and let the Holy Spirit work with you. And this will certainly serve as a marvelous, clear way to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Like Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or Romans 3, 23 and 24, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Or Ephesians 2.8 For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Acts 16.31 And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Romans 4, 3, 4, and 5. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. 
but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And John 3.36 He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. And as Paul said, answering to his dilemma set forth in Romans 7.24 through chapter 8, verse 1, here's the answer. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then John 3.17 and 18, For God sent his Son not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. My goodness, what wonderful promises I have just read. So faith alone in the work of Christ is sufficient for salvation. As ambassadors for Christ, in this the church age, believers are the primary agents of witnessing in the church age, just as Israel will be in the tribulation. Notice Second Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Second Corinthians 6, 3, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. So to give no offense demands knowledge of doctrine so that knowledge can transform us. Be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of the mind, that says again Romans 12.2. In witnessing we must avoid false issues and theological questions. The devil always wants to get us off track. We must simply present the claims of Christ. 1 John 2.2 2, And he is the pro Pitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So sin is no longer an issue. What is the issue? What think ye of Christ? Witnessing then comes in two ways we've earlier seen. The example of your life and the word of your lips. Notice 2 Corinthians 3, 3, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, now in tables of stone, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. What is the reward? And there is a reward for witnessing. What is that reward? The reward for witnessing is part of your blessing, both for time as well as eternity. All right, with that said, uh, I think we've covered the doctrine of witnessing. Uh, as John has covered it in his message that we just saw in chapter 5. 
So next week, the Lord willing and the creek done rise, we're going to take a look at John 6, 1 through 14, as we continue with our study of the Gospel of John. You've had a message of evangelism. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I cannot make it any clearer. So I'm simply going to close by thanking God for the privilege of being a pastor and this the church aid. Father, I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.